Hello and welcome to a special episode of Ranking Thrones. I am James Kelly, and I'm and my co-host Evan Camacho will not be joining us for this episode. But in, instead, we got a real fantastic guest on. Uh, we have with us here uh, a New York Times best-selling author who's worked on Batman and Supergirl, but he's here to talk about his work on George R. R. Martin's um, the adaptation of of A Clash of Kings. This is really wonderful to have him on here. Thank you for joining us, Landry, Landry Q. Walker. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so, kind of a, to to go a little bit back and just ask some general questions. When did you start writing? Um, okay, uh, let me think. I mean, the first thing I remember writing was uh, probably, if you want to get technical, when I was like 10 years old, a Lord of the Rings fan fiction um, about what, what occurred in the mines of Moria. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but professionally is kind of a gray, fuzzy thing as well, because I, I jumped into comics when I was about 18 years old a lot of my friends, I'd always wanted to do it and it had been on my mind the whole time, but I could never see a path because I'm a terrible artist. And mm -hmm. I really didn't understand that I could potentially come in as a writer. And I had all these friends who were just really wonderful artists, constantly drawing, but they weren't putting anything together. It was a lot of pinup pages yeah. um, and illustrations, with the exception of one friend, uh, Eric Jones, who had done 20 pages of this loosely conceptualized uh i think it was a vampire story and um he and i started talking and i said well why don't i write some scripts and um i've been working with him I, i'm still working with him it's been 30 years 30 years oh that's awesome we've done <laughs> uh we worked on batman brave and the bold together supergirl cosmic adventures we did countless projects for disney uh publishing um uh so, yeah, we started working and we started with mini comics and zines kind of stuff. And we're part of this because this was pre-internet. This is uh, we started working on this stuff in 1989, I want to say 1990. Yeah. And our first comic was completed come 92 or 91 in right in there. And by that point, we were part of we kind of formed with several other Bay Area cartoonists um, uh, what was called uh, it was a small press art collective called Puppy Toss. And we uh, served as kind of a distribution hub for a lot of local creators. And there was a great time to be a comics creator in the Bay Area because, you know, we were working with um, we both worked at a comic book store with Ed Brubaker, who's gone on to. Uh, wow, become, really? Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, all worked at Comic Relief together. Um, well, technically, Eric worked with him at Comic Relief. I worked at the UC Theater down the street with Ed's girlfriend at the time, Carol. Uh -huh. And and my girlfriend, Tracy, at the time, uh, worked at Comic Relief with Ed and Eric. Um, there was Dylan Williams, uh, who uh, had went on later to create a company called Sparkplug Comic Books, which was the first real publisher of Eisner Award winner Jason Shiga. Um, there was a lot of people involved in the comics community back then in the Bay Area. Keith Knight, uh, who does a, a comic strip that was in a lot of newspapers called the K Chronicles, who's, uh, I believe there's a show about his life coming out about Bay Area comics life in the nineties. That's just going to be weird. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So anyway, there was a lot of stuff coming out of, uh, the area at the time. And, um, so we did that and we really, uh, we started looking for a publisher, um, found a small press publisher to pick up one of our books 
spent a few years doing that and trying to figure out the medium. It was really early clumsy attempts. And Mm -hmm. by 1999, so we'd been doing about seven years at that point, eight years. By the time, by the time it really had come together with a publisher, we'd been doing about seven years and we kind of rebranded into doing this all ages stuff, which quickly got the attention of Disney. We started doing stuff for Disney adventures and so on. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a, a weird slide from doing comics for ourselves, trying to put them out there in the world on our own, and years of doing that gradiating into uh, something more professional where we were getting paid. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm an aspiring writer myself and trying to make it in. So that mythical day when I get paid will be wonderful to to achieve. But I'll keep on plugging. There is a Polaroid of me cashing my first check, and which should tell you how long ago that was. But it's a uh, my friend John, who is uh, uh, actually like uh, a guy who this guy who now owns multiple restaurants, and it's a long story. But he's actually we're working together on financing comics projects. But at the time, uh, he did not own all that. But he he took me to cash my first check and took a Polaroid of me cashing my first check for eight hundred dollars. And oh my god, that was a lot of money at the time. Yeah. Wow. So it's worth a, it's a, it's worth the fight, is what I would say. Okay. Um, so you mentioned earlier, and I'm just curious. I, I know the that this is a, a a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, but I I am curious. So you worked on Batman: Brave and the Bold. It's a very famously in a time when the kind of Nolan Batman was really in the popular consciousness. That was a much more brighter and upbeat Batman. What was it like writing that kind of Batman story? Well, it, it's funny because um, Eric and I had already done a uh, our own version of Supergirl. We had reinvented Supergirl mm-hmm. in a miniseries called um, Supergirl Cosmic Adventures in the 8th Grade. And that was winding up. And so we put together a Batman pitch um, that was kind of our own reinterpretation of kind of the 1960s TV show Batman combined with elements of the 1950s uh, kind of more barrel-chested Batman. And we put all this stuff together, and we went down to San Diego Comic-Con, where we've been going for years and years, and we thought, well, we're, we're going to take this, and we'll pitch it to our editor, and maybe we could transition from Supergirl into this, like, original reinvented Batman concept. And we get there, and there's all these banners and images announcing Batman Brave and the Bold. And we pretty much threw <laughs> our pitch away. We're like, well, this isn't happening. This is dead. Um, because it was almost identical. Yeah. Like, like, so it was really the strange case of, of lateral thinking. And yeah. so we finished up with Supergirl and then, um, an editor we knew pretty well, Mike Seglane, um, came and, uh, approached us about picking up, I think with issue nine of Batman Brave and the Bold, we came in after, um, oh, I forget his name. He's one of the show writers, um. And uh, Andy uh, Suryana, who was a designer, uh, the guy mm-hmm. who's doing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles now, is a really awesome. great artist. Yeah. Um, they, so we were following them on that. And my Batman, when I was growing up, was because I grew up in the 70s and I grew up on reruns of the 60s TV show. And I was four years old. That was permeated in my brain. Um, the camp the, wasn't camp. The melodrama wasn't melodrama. It was just drama. It was all real when you're four. And you're watching oh, yeah. this stuff. Um, I, I, I watched it at that age too, and it was yeah. I was like, I. It was like what? It was a comedy. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. It was an intense and wonderful viewing experience, and so um, you know, 
it goes back into that thing where I said Eric and I had transitioned back in 1999 into doing all ages comics because, you know, that's kind of the core of it. You need to be able to have material that you can give to children if we're going to foster readers for the next generation. And so getting to work on Batman Brave and the Bold, we pretty much just did what we wanted to do with our Batman pitch anyway, minus Robin. We weren't allowed to use Robin. Oh. And which killed me because I actually met Burt Ward. He was in costume and everything. I met him at one of those car shows in like 1976. There's a photo of us together oh, um, wow. when I was That's five. It's, it's just, just freaking great. Um, so uh, what was it? Um, so getting to work on that was an incredible high point because I was a huge Batman fan. We got to do uh, uh, quite a bit. First thing I did was, you know, do something with the Riddler because that was my favorite character. We made sure in our very first issue, because I'm like, they're going to figure out that they should not have given us this job <laughs> and take it away from us. Um, and so the first thing I did, I did an issue with that had appearances by Two-Face, uh, the Riddler, Penguin, Joker. We have a scene where Batman is knocking over the Penguin by swinging. The Penguin has mind-controlled seals wearing turtlenecks that say <laughs> oh, seals wow. on them. With little yeah. mind control helmets and domino masks. And yeah. Batman swinging the seal by the tail, knocking over the penguin. And the sound effect for it is seal. So <laughs> that was, that's the kind of fun you want to have with that stuff. And it was, uh, yeah. yeah, Joker, Penguin, Riddler, Two-Face, get those iconic ones in there um, right off the bat. Uh, we got to handle, I think we have a brief bit with Scarecrow. We did stuff with Catman in that same issue. We did... Uh, brief guest appearances by the Zatanna Mento. I mean, I think the only character like I would have killed to get to do something with was uh, the original, well, not original, but the Steve Ditko Blue Beetle, the Ted Cord oh, Blue oh, yeah. Beetle. Yeah. I, one of my favorite characters, uh, him in the question, I have all the old Charlton uh, 60s comics uh, where they appeared, um, and the, the rare Alex Toth drawn question from the 70s, which is brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so yes, it was it was a dream come true working on Batman, and we did. We only got to do I think seven issues, which was mm-hmm. disappointing because um, Mike, our editor, uh, left to go work for Disney, uh, where mm-hmm. he is still uh, at. And uh, with a new editor came change, and they they moved on. Even though we had done the book that Grant Morrison at the time was calling DC's best book. Wow, that's yeah. great praise. It, it was it was it was it was interesting. It was interesting because you know we're not that much younger than Grant Morrison. We actually um, crashed a party of his back in the early '90s. Um, Eric and I did, along with our friend Dylan, um, and he showed up in San Francisco for this party, and so we crashed it because we knew we'd get free food. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it was at the Tiki Room bar, and one of the re- we were there, and we grabbed a table and we're eating food. And Grant Morrison showed up, and he was wearing this big cat in a hat hat wow. it was 1992 and big sunglasses and um one of the retailers recognized us rory root from comic relief came over it's like yeah you guys should finish your food and go we're like oh, oh. Rory. <laughs> it, we were caught uh-huh. but it was fun um <laughs> so uh-huh. so sorry i'm i'm free associating again here um no it's all right it's wonderful uh, yeah, so it was, a uh, uh, you know, comics in the early 90s were a wild time. That's the best I can say about that. And uh, a lot of the these established creators weren't established creators then. So yeah. there's all kinds of crazy stories involving them. Um, well, uh, I, I mean, from this great documentary, The Image Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, 
this great story they they tell of um, what the people that were working with Rob Liefeld. Um, one of the the members who just wore the Bad Rock costume, I understand, like took a like took a joyride in in Rob Liefeld's red Viper and totaled it. Wow! And, and when and when Rob Liefeld was told that, he was just like, eh, "Doesn't matter," because at that point, it didn't matter monetarily. He just like could afford a new one. Yeah, yeah, no, it was interesting because. When all that happened, when the image comic scene blew up, um, I was working Comic Relief. I was no longer at the UC Theater down the street. By that time, I was at Comic Relief proper. And um, it was, I think, 92, uh, around March, April, February of 92. And we would just have lines of people buying those image books because they were brand new. And people would just buy, they were buying every copy of stacks. um, And, you know, it's like, guess what happens when... people buy everyone's buying 10 copies of the same book it was yeah we we all knew it was going to lead to a bad place like it was yeah. great for those image creators at the time they made all that crazy money and retailers got a brief surge but the collapse was disastrous for comics yeah. well that's all something i'd love to write a book or a comic about someday but yeah just th- yeah. those are amazing stories so I want to do one last question about Batman. I know that again, yeah. like I'm, I'm apologizing. Like we'll get to Westeros. I swear oh, we'll, we'll get I to can Westeros. I talk about all this. I'm fine with it. If your listeners are happy, that's a concern, but I I'll talk about all of it. Um, is, um, I remember this great quote by Frank Miller once said at a panel that Batman is a little bit like a diamond and that a- any interpretation of Batman works. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, what is it about this character, and I'm going to repeat this question a little bit later, but what is it about Batman that you think makes him so broadly appealing and so versatile to so many interpretations? Well, you know, um, at a gut reaction, my answer to that um, is a question. Have you read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics? I have not personally, no. Oh, you really should. I highly <laughs> recommend it. Okay. Um, there's a part in there where he talks about, um, and this is meant on the visual level, but I think it applies to the writing level as well, where we look for representations of self in art constantly. We see faces in everything. He, you look at an outlet and you can see a face. You can look at the grill of a car and you see a face. Yeah. And the more anthropomorphized, the more simple that face is until we get down to a circle, just a circle and two dots for eyes and a line for mouth. It can be anyone. The more, yeah. the more detailed it is, the, le- the less of us it can be. And Batman, especially Batman, not Bruce Wayne, but Batman, in a lot of ways, can be almost any of us. Mm-hmm. He is, he's anger, he's vengeance, he's justice, um, mm-hmm. he's, you know, heroism. He can, whatever we need him to be, he can be. He can be the goofy daytime, let's go, chum, father-like figure, you know, having, you know, fun and exciting, but overall safe adventures, or he can be the grim wrath of the shadows of the night. And I think they're all valid. Like I love the, uh, the, 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 was it the, the movie with Heath Ledger as the Joker, which is, as you said before, it's this weird contrast that we, we're in the peak of that and we get the Batman brave and bold, uh, cartoon. And we have this, this like weird juxtaposition of, which Batman is it? Well, they both are. They're, yeah. they're both. And I think that that's kind of it. That's why everyone is bringing themselves on some level or what they need for their own personal reasons, what they need Batman to be. 
um, kind of comes to the fore because it's all about projection, both from a creator perspective and a reader perspective. It's about personal uh, projection and escapism. Okay. Yeah, that's great. It's a fantastic answer. And, um, and so with a completely rough transition, <laughs> but um, so what was your kind of familiarity of George R. R. Martin's work before coming into this project? Like what? Um, the, uh, uh, well, I had first, I, I picked up uh, books. Um, I started reading the books when uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, gave me a copy of the first one in, I want to say 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, for the most ridiculous of reasons, I was instantly drawn to it because I um, physically detest the warmth I like cold to this <laughs> excessive degree. Anything over 60 degrees, I start to get uncomfortable. And I actually eventually got diagnosed with this medical condition where, yeah, no, I, I don't process heat well. So oh, okay. the, the first thing off the bat, I'm looking, it's like, it all takes place in this wintry world. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> and I am a crazy nut for anything like swords and um, historical fiction kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And also I've been like a zombie fanatic since, well, going back to when zombies weren't popular in the eighties. Um, and so within the first chapter, of course, you yeah. get winter, you get sword, historical fantasy fiction, and you get a form of zombie. So yeah, I, I was, I was locked in. Yeah. Um, and so I became a really big fan of the books. Uh, I don't think it was that long after is when the fourth, maybe a couple of years when the fourth book came out, my timeline here is going to be muddy. So anyone listening will probably know better than I do, but I went I, to a, I think it's 2005 is when the, is when a feast for crows came out. So right. yeah. So I read the first three in rapid succession and not long after that. And, you know, relatively speaking, um, the, the fourth book came out, so I had a, a nice front row seat to the release of that because I went to a, um, a signing in oh, San Francisco. Nice. Um, and it was this great, really tiny, intimate sort of uh, affair. Um, it was in a basement of a building, and um, there were maybe 30 of us showed up for it. Myself oh, and wow. Me. I can't imagine. Like, <laughs> imagine if you're like that now. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it was just a roundtable kind of discussion. He talked for a little bit. Just an- we got to raise our hands, ask questions. And at the end of it, we all just hung out and talked and did a little lineup for getting books signed. And I, I got to talk to uh, George for a few minutes, and I gave him some of my comics, and he had me sign them, which was really nice. Nice. Um, and, uh, it was interesting because of course, you know, he's talking about like, he got asked, you know, cause Lord of the Rings movies were so hot at the time still. Oh, yeah. And he asked, well, well, you know, what do you think of movies? He says, I, I couldn't see it, you know, being, uh, uh, even a trilogy of movies. It would have to be like some kind of epic mini series with like multiple episodes per season. And oh, multiple yeah. seasons. This, <laughs> and he's great. like, and I don't think anyone's going to want to make that. So, um, yeah. turns out someone did. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it was a, you know, so it was a, a, a really nice, uh, time, which just cements your fandom even more when you meet a creator, you meet an author. And I don't meet a lot of creators or authors, uh, as a <laughs> fan because there's a little bit of, you've peered behind the curtain when you work in these things and it's hard to invest yourself in this in the way that is enjoyable 
Um, but this was one of those moments where I just got to just be a fan. And, um, uh, so from there, you know, just like the rest of us, I was reading the books. I would listen to the audio books, the ones by Roy Detrice, um, which I love. And, uh, then I think it was, um, 2010. Yeah. When, um, I want to say I was working on a book with um, Dean Koontz. I was doing an, uh, a collaboration with Dean Koontz on one wow. of his projects, which, you know, he he created an outline for one of his Odd Thomas stories. And then I took that and turned it into a like 200 page manga uh, style uh, graphic novel. That's amazing. Um, it was really interesting, but I almost worked instead um, at the time. Uh, I, I was working with Del Rey at the time for, on that. And so, I guess that's when the first graphic novel uh, adaptation for, for Game of Thrones came up, and they asked me if I would be interested in that. And I was already working on a Steen Koontz one, but I w- they sent me this email, like because, of course, the show wasn't a thing at this point. Oh, yeah. Uh, whenever this was, it was not... I think there was already... Like, it may have been announced, but no one knew what it was in terms of the big general public yet. Yeah. So they're like, have you ever heard of... Uh, George R. R. Martin's series. That I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, but as it turned, I, I, I sent in a sample and I actually took my signed copy of Game of Thrones and kind of tore it apart, the one I got wow. a few years earlier, to um, break it down and figure out how do I take this and turn it into a, a comics page. I took that first chapter that I had fallen in love with and I, turned, I, I wrote a, a script for it. Um, that was fairly transformative, more than we ended up doing with Clash of Kings when I actually came onto it. But uh, so I turned that in, and then uh, they said, "Well, he." It turns out he already has an idea of who he wants to work with, somebody he's worked with before, which was fine because okay. it was it was going to be an either or preposition for me, uh, which of either I had to drop the Dean Koontz book and do this, or vice versa. So I still had a job, oh. so I'm like, okay, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Um. But there was a part of me like, oh, I'm, you know, I'd already worked on Batman, which I was a huge fan of. So working on things I'm a fan of is, that's the, when, when you're talking about the work for hire stuff, because I also do a lot yeah. of creator-owned projects. But when mm-hmm. you're talking about the work for hire stuff, that's kind of the dream. Um, so what happened? Uh, several years passed. And um, suddenly I get this email out of the blue um, asking me, uh, saying, hey, we uh, were looking at doing another book, and we remember your pitch, and we really liked it. Um, and we're wondering if you're available now for the second one. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, uh, but there was no question of if I had heard of it at that point. Because yeah. <laughs> a, a few years ago, I think, at this point, everyone had heard of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the... I, a little more than you asked with the question, I kind of just started rolling with it. But um, well, that's perfect because you, you you answered a couple other questions I was going to ask. So to get into it, um, so getting into a, a Clash of Kings, um, one of the things that I first um, just wanted to ask, kind of a bit more on the general thing, is that you you've of course talked about how you worked with a lot of all ages material, and uh, there. And what's it like working in the more mature uh, adult world of uh, of George R. R. Martin's Westeros? 
Well, in terms of, of from a personal perspective, my work has always bounced around. My earliest comics work mm-hmm. was very raw, gritty, underground, um, sex and violence and drugs type of stuff. Okay. Um, the uh, Then I moved into the more uh, all-ages stuff. And um, then I did a – and I kind of stayed there for a long time. And I noticed I was getting pigeonholed in that. So I actually yeah. moved to – uh, Eric Jones and I did a comic series called Danger Club, which was for Image, which is this deconstructionist uh, take on teenage superheroes, and really just a commentary about the the history and state of the publishing of superhero books and the and editorial influence and the endless reboots. Because it's basically characters that are fighting their own crisis, which is functionally their own reboot. They're they're trying to uh-huh. the the great monstrosity they're fighting is functionally the editor. Um, anyway. <laughs> But it was this, I mean, there's people's heads getting blown off, children committing suicide. It's a very wow. um, brutal book. It's, it, yeah. it, I, there were YouTube reviews where people are like starting to cry, talking about it. I'm like, oh God, maybe I went a little too hard on this. <laughs> um, so it's not an unfamiliar territory. Okay. Um, it, but it's interesting though, because the material, and, and it's funny because I think maybe I learned a little of this doing Danger Club, the material is so sensitive in nature it can be so brutal and there's also such a power in how you display things like for lack of a better term like on page or off page on screen or off screen Uh um when you're depicting sex scenes when you're depicting the brutality of a person being gutted from their like crotch to their neck do you show it yeah or do you let it happen in the shadows and let the mind's eye fill in in a way that art never could. And are you making it easier on the eye? Or are you actually making it way more brutal because you're hiding it? So there's this weird dance with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a perfect uh, question to ask because, um, and I'm, I'm wondering, like you're going to, um, obviously from what we have published already, we can see some of the violent moments in A Clash of Kings, but you're going to eventually get to, of course, the Battle of the Blackwater Bay, Yes. And like that, the horrors of war, and I very viscerally remember reading it. Just, um, and I'm not talking about the way that they sh- presented it in the show, but just in, I'm talking about the books. Sure. Um, but, but just how Sir Davos is right there, and like he witnesses the horrors of the of the the wildfire coming off, and and that triggers also uh, the Hound, and triggers all his horrible memories of fire and his fear of fire, and gets him to quit. And yeah. abandons post, and so, what? What do you think? Uh, I'm. I don't want to put words and give too big of a preview for what you, how you and uh, Mel Ruby are going to approach that. But just like what, what, what's kind of like? You already have kind of touched upon it, I guess. I'm. I'm. I'm what I'm wondering is like, when you cover things like war, when it's like it's clearly like this is a violent moment. What do you decide? Do you ever like decide? Have you ever decided? Mm, I'm. I'm going to not show that, but I am going to show this. Well, it's interesting. Um, in that regard, there, there's, there's like probably three or four different um, kind of sub-questions kind of, uh, yeah, of course. that I, I could address. And each one of them, I think, is really interesting. Um, first, touching on the uh, kind of the last question first is um, there's a ultimately, and you probably have another question for this, but I'm going to jump into it is there's a certain difficulty in, in some of this with, you got to get judicious with space. I am limited yeah. um, by page count. Like I don't dictate the page count. I'm given um, 21 pages uh, per mm-hmm. issue to work with. 
uh, where the previous series had 28 issues. Um, so we're at a deficit of seven per issue. But we are, I think, I think we're doing more issues. Um, the first thing I said to Anne, uh, uh, girl, my editor, she's uh, the editor on the on the novels and has been since uh, they virtually began, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I said is, we're going to get to that battle. And I have been a firm believer in a long time of doing uh, uh, this sort of scene just giant splash pages. Like, I just want big double page splash pages. I want a whole oh, issue. Yeah. I have no idea what we're going to do because we're a couple issues. Or I'm still a few issues from that. In, um, mm-hmm. And I haven't tackled it yet, but I am a believer. I've been a believer since then. Like We need to pull everything we can away from those into other issues so that our focus can be these big moments. Because everything yeah. in, in previous, like all these... We have issue after issue of these small council meetings, these tense, quiet discussions here. Tyrion pouring wine. I'm always having Tyrion pour wine. Tyrion, <laughs> I love it. All my scripts are Tyrion. Like, like there's a moment. I'm going to segue. There's a moment where Tyrion and Cersei are talking, and he's been pouring himself wine this whole time, sipping and pouring while he's talking. And when she finally goes to pour herself a, a glass, it's empty. And while while he, she's like looking, she, talking, she's also looking at the at the bottle. Like, what just happened? Like, where did <laughs> all this kind of a foreshadowing of Tyrion's excess in that regard? Yeah. Um. So, because you always have to think about how are these characters performing on the page? What are they doing? Especially when you're dealing with blocks of dialogue of two people sitting at a table, because no one just mm. sits at a table. We all um, are moving. We're all kind of constant these things in motion, these creatures in motion. So that kind of dovetails back into another part of your question. How do you portray, like, the hound's fear? How do you get Sir Davos's horror? And a big part of that is something I've been playing with um, since several... Uh, after a point in the book, I started really um, trying to play with the uh, page construction. So I write very detailed... Um, scripts for Mel mm-hmm. um, absurdly detailed I feel so bad for him yeah. <laughs> um, and I sometimes I'll, I usually do these um, different layout uh, like one or two special kind of layout pages per per issue mm-hmm. where I actually send in a thumbnail for it um, a recent one would be when Arya is sitting there she's first been she's she's become a mouse she is everyone is is being tortured Everyone by, by the tickler, and yeah. there's this cluster of small panels with blood dripping off of them into a little pool. And it's just this cacophony of is there gold in the village with her kind of huddled there. And yeah. I did the layouts for that as an example. And it's an example of like, okay, she's feeling powerless, she's feeling claustrophobic, she's feeling helpless. How do we build the tension of this visually? So I don't know if it's successful because you never do when you do it, but that was my yeah. attempt. At so I did really detailed layouts on that one for both the um, construction of the page, the art in the panels, and the layout of the lettering, um, and uh, trying to give this sense of tension, this different kind of tension, this helplessness, this you know. Mm-hmm. So and then there's there's a there's usually something like that in every issue where there's a scene where we have to kind of we have some kind of really important moment or something we need to condense where i've got to get really tricky with the panel construction and i I expect that that's what i'm going to be looking at when the hound you know 
flees to the fire, like and my first thought is a succession of dwindling panels as he the mm. panels themselves grow smaller and he grows smaller yeah. within them as he drops his sword, turns and flees without any sound, any dialogue, and we see him recede into the background and all across like a field of fire. Like you have the whole panel the whole page is the fire, and then you have like these four panels dwindling into it as if he's running just to show how overwhelmed he is by the magnitude of the fire and what it what it means to him. Yeah. Something like that, just off the top of my head. Okay, well, that's a good preview that we're all going to really look forward to, and that's going to be fantastic. I mean, there's so much, many exciting moments in A Clash of Kings. I, I was going to ask earlier, is I'm just curious, like, because um, you, you, you mentioned that you were asked at one point, and you, you did a pitch uh, adapting a, ga- a Game of Thrones, the first book. Mm-hmm. Is there any moment in, a, in the first book that you wish you could have tackled? Hmm. Huh. Um, let me think on that for a second. Probably the the first scene that comes to mind is like in a little bit. It's it's an important scene, but in some ways, somewhat innocuous. Um, there's when they're on the road in general while they're traveling. When say for an example, the king and Ned talk about who John's mother was, and Ned oh, has yes. got his you know casual answer. And um, the another bit, of course, is the. Uh, the confrontation, the ultimately very important confrontation uh, between Joffrey, Arya, and Sansa, and the, um, oh, what was it? He was like a baker's boy? Yeah, butcher's boy. The butcher's Micah. boy. Yeah. yeah, Micah. And um, that, uh, those bits there appeal to me ultimately probably more than Winterfell. Um, of course, there's the opening scene, which is would be huge. Yeah. But those, something about those scenes when they're on the road, um, I find very appealing. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, I want to touch back a little bit because um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned your detailed scripts and those little small details. Mm-hmm. One of the small details I just wanted to compliment you on that I loved in the in the I think the second issue where it was um, the tourney for Joffrey's name day, mm-hmm. and you had and you had little Tommen wave goodbye to to mm-hmm. his uncle Tyrion and Sansa. And I, I love that, just like those little small details of just you later ha- then would have Tyrion touch Cersei's hand, and then the next panel you have Cersei wiping her hand. Yeah, yeah, just that's like small details like that. That's that's great. I love the interplay between Tyrion and Cersei. It's some of the oh, funnest yeah. stuff to write because you know there's an interesting bit, like at this point, at this point in the books, they don't really hate each other, right? They, mm-hmm. you know. They they don't like each other, but they're family. Like there's moments yeah. like where where Cersei's talking to Tyrion, and Tyrion says, "Well, you know, they cut Ned Stark's head off," and 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 Cersei gets kind of like, "Yeah, that wasn't the plan." Oh my god! And <laughs> it's hard to imagine Cersei later having such a uh, an honest moment, an an open moment with Tyrion. Um, or of course the bit where they're uh, where he drugs her actually yeah. <laughs> even oh. like when they when she picks him up and spins him around laughing because they realize that Renly and uh, and Stannis are going to fight each other and she just can't stop laughing about it and she, yeah. then he starts laughing and that you know I love the sibling interplay um, mm-hmm. so little stuff like the hand uh, little and and of course. Uh, um, yeah. So yeah, that's the stuff that I really enjoy because it, 
we can't, you know, we have to rely on the visuals to give us a lot of the meat of the story that um, was originally imbued into the text. And so finding these little corners to, you know, this is who the character is. This is what they would be doing in this moment. It's, it's, it makes it interesting because I don't have it. And I can put all my energy into trying to find those moments because I'm not writing it. It's written. Yeah. My goal is to bring as much of it as true that's in the book as true to life as I can in, you know, without diverging. And our goal the entire team's goal is to diverge as little as is humanly possible. Okay. So that's wonderful. And that's a question uh, that many fans wonder and ask. And I wonder, like, some fans, like, on the on the Reddit sub-forums that I peruse occasionally, um, re- read a lot of times, uh, that, that um, they, like, they, they, of course, gripe about the changes made by the TV show. And I, I just wonder, in the back of my head, it was like, well, there's... You can go to the graphic novels. The graphic novels are very, very far more closer to the books, and you can just go there. And that's if you want the, the as close an experience as you can get to the books. I say go to the graphic novels. Imagine what we could do if we had like, I wish we had like forty pages per issue per oh. um, for for each chapter because I break this stuff down. And this is this is the trick of the meeting because this is why you know adapt adaptations change things because you can you can just build so much into prose um that it has to pay off so differently just when you deal with scene transitions i've got issues mm-hmm. where Tyrion is running around through king's landing and he has like five different moments and i've got eight pages to tell that that's my that's my currency i got eight pages to spend here wow but he's okay. got to have like five different conversations with uh, different people, and they're all momentous, and each one of them deserves probably a double splash page of some magnitude, but you can't do it. Yeah. And you have to start going, okay, what what is absolutely critical, and what do I, what can I pull as painful as it is? Every cut, it, it hurts. Because oh, yeah. I want to put it all. And so my first draft, I leave in everything. I do a full script, and sometimes I'm looking, going to do this the way I would want to do it, 80 pages for this chapter. You oh, know? wow. And then I have to whittle that down to eight pages. Um, wow. It's, so it's all the, the, the science of panel construction mm-hmm. and subtle um, visual cues like the ones you mentioned. And we try to keep it as true to the sources as possible. So what we do is find ways to, we might omit things, but we try not to ever change things. Yeah. There's a big difference between those. Not that I'm against it. I very much enjoyed the show. Um, it is a different animal, and it should be. It's like, yeah. you know, I uh, I enjoy. Let me, let me preface this with a little segue that I enjoyed the movie Watchmen, but I absolutely mm-hmm. agreed with Alan Moore years ago when he said a film version of Watchmen shouldn't try to be the comic book Watchmen. It should be something that reflects a medium that's being filmed in rather than because a comic was built to reflect yeah. comics. Yeah. It is a study oh, in comics. So yeah. by doing a slavish one-to-one translation in that regard, you're doing the medium a disservice. So mm-hmm. the, the TV show, I think, made the right choices. But for us, the right choice is um, to keep that material as true as we feasibly can. And it's, it's a battle, but it's one where the entire team is really dedicated to. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not really going to complain right now when, when I say this. Like, an omission that I understood stood why it wasn't included, but 
a little bit like broke my heart just because it's an interesting of one of the things I love about the books is is the internal monologues and just how much everything comes from a certain character's perspective. Yeah. And um, you included that Daenerys received the news that Robert is uh, Robert and Ned Stark are dead, but I love that little scene where where they comment on what what lies Joffrey and and the Lannisters have spread about yeah. that. And I loved like like Daenerys's imp- like impression of of Robert of just like he was this horrible specter of death on her all the time and like rigid, cold Ned Stark. Like she, that's all she knew. Yeah. And so that that that's interesting. But I understand why that wasn't included. Uh, but on the positive side, uh, or or just a more get, get more complimentary side, and not have you storm off. And oh no! Critic criticism is is wonderful. Honestly, I have no problem with it. Is um, is I loved when you is that um something that you you and uh, the, the graphic novels are able to preserve, and this isn't a criticism of the show by the way, is um you're able to keep in things like the that scene describing the what the real Lightbringer was and and the mythology and kind of what it took for Azora High to to make the true Lightbringer sword. Uh, along with um, the, that wonderful visual scene of uh, Brand's dreams, where it goes into a ni- different art style. Oh yeah, that. Well, okay. So two different things there. As I recall, the retaining. So okay, I write a full script, and then Anne, the editor, will go through, and she does um, a draft where she then kind of pieces and pulls um, because her knowledge is of, of the materials intimate in a way that I, I don't think any readers could be. Um, <laughs> Of course. And then she, I think she built that scene back in and then she sends it back to me. And I, if I have any notes, I go back to her, but she's been brilliant, brilliant, brilliant to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of collaboration that goes on there. I think she put that one back in, but then the, the scene you're talking about with Bran and the different art style was completely um, uh, driven by me. I, I wrote, I said, we need to, there was, there were things that we can do in comics that are really critical. Like for an example, and they didn't do this in the first, uh, novel adaptation. And I was very insistent and pushed very hard that we needed this in this one. We need title cards for each. When we change chapters, we yeah. need that, that name on top, just like you get when you, when you flip the page and it's a new chapter in the book, our job is to make it feel like you're reading a visual version of the book. And that is a key part, that name up top. Yeah. And so I, I, I pushed to have that in. And then starting with the first issue, we have kind of this um, uh, a scene of a ship, as I recall. The details are a little lost in my head right now, but it was um, a very important, it was very important to me that it was done differently, borderless, like water-stained, sepia tone. So we knew we weren't seeing something, there was no confusion that we were seeing something that happens now. It was something that, uh, was it like we're jumping in our perspective since it's a visual medium, we need to make it clear uh-huh. when you look at it that, Oh, so this is like a flashback or this is, yeah. so that was something else. I was very insistent from, from day one. It's like, we have to, when we have these cutaway bits, we have to make sure they are visually distinct. And so when we got to brand, um, I, I looked at actually, I, I, I pointed to the work of an artist called, uh, named Peter Cooper, Mm-hmm. Um, who's does a lot of really nightmarishly um, brilliant angular work. And I said, this is the kind of tone uh, I think we should evoke as, as he goes into this dream. Cause it's very much a nightmare for him mm-hmm. at this point. It's very much fear. I know that he, where he goes to with it and what's really, we all know 
at this yeah. point where he's headed, but he doesn't. And, and uh, the tension and fear he's feeling at that point is, is very strong. And I thought that we needed an off-kilter, kind of nightmarish um, style break. So we knew what we were seeing as a reader. We'd instantly go, oh, he's having a nightmare. But yeah. also it heightens our tension. Um, it kind of gets into, like, um, like, have you ever thought about why there are no rails on any of the uh, construction in the Death Star, for an example? <laughs> like, yeah. why is there no OSHA going, hey, stormtroopers are going to die here and there's going to be a lawsuit and the Emperor's going to lose Alderaan or whatever. Okay, not that one. Um, bad <laughs> example. But in, it's, because, it's not because it's meant to be realistic. It's because it's meant yeah. to evoke tension yeah. um, subconsciously in the reader. So by shifting the art style either subtly or dramatically in that instance, we help create uh, the tension that we lack the ability to build into the prose because we can't create new prose and maybe some of the old prose doesn't work to just drop in, in into a caption in a narrative uh, sense. So we have to segue visually in a way. You're, you were able to capture, and you've talked about it, but you, you're able to preserve so many of the, the, the great dialogue scenes at, while at the same time making them very visually interesting. The, the, the scene that I... W- want to particularly focus in on as it's one of probably my favorite moment in a clash of Kings is, um, the meeting of, of Stannis and Renly with Catelyn. Wow. They're sort of as an arbiter and sort of somewhat on, on Renly's side. Mm-hmm. And like, that was just a magnificent scene and just like a great, and you included the, the, the infamous, uh, one of the most infamous omissions from the TV show, Renly's peach. Oh yeah, the peach. I love that bit with the peach. It felt so because there's so much kind of dismissive in that moment that was just so important to have. So yeah, yeah. No, that was when I was I had to edit a lot out of that issue. I remember because again we've got a lot of important things that occur, um, and I never came close to cutting the peach. I didn't. It's you know one of the things I haven't done is return to the TV show since I started this job. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago. So uh, I have no recollection at this point because I've, I've seen them all. I, I mean, don't get yeah. me wrong. I watched the new ones as they came out because I wasn't going to miss that cultural touchstone moment. Um, but uh, I haven't gone back, which I probably would have done like many people have done is maybe binge the first seven seasons again before we got to the finale. Um, I didn't feel like I could afford that because I need to maintain my distance with the earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. Um as long as we're doing these adaptations, it's, I don't want to taint my perspective and go, well, they didn't put this in. We should put this in. I don't think about it, um, okay. but I'm glad then to know that we captured something that wasn't translated elsewhere, because that means we have a visual translation for that, for, mm-hmm. for the people who want it. Yeah. Well, I mean like that. And, uh, again, this, this is not a critique. I will say it again. <laughs> this is not a critique of the, of the show, but like, um, the, like um, the other big moment that is very informative on the character that was sadly lost, even though I love what they did do with the character, is um, Sir Jorah's backstory, which you were able to include. And that it's a wonderful sequence of just how he ended up becoming so financially destitute that he would resort to ultimately sell people as slaves. And just, yeah. And that, that's a wonderful story of just like, 
he did it all for love and the girl abandons him still. It was such a brutal story. Uh, and when I got to that, that was one of those moments actually I realized this is to make this fit. Like we, I had to use both two different tricks that we've talked about where I did yeah. the kind of the, the break, the visual, a different visual tone where we did kind of the sepia, as I recall. Um, at least that was what we were supposed to do. I, I haven't looked in a while, but I'm pretty sure we did do mm-hmm. that. And also I did the layouts for that one. I did kind of, I've been looking at the work of, um, oh God, what's his name? Brilliant cartoonist. Uh, did a lot of work on DC's Batwoman, J.H. Williams. Oh, yeah, J.H. Williams, the third. His, yeah. And I had the, the pleasure of uh, sitting next to him at dinner um, last February. Oh. Uh, or February yes. before. Maybe it's a little longer ago. Um, about a, a little over a year ago, and then talked to him again a couple days later. And just one of the uh, nicest people I've met in the comics industry mm-hmm. and shocked I hadn't met him before. Oh. But um, I had already been looking at a lot of his... Uh, layout because he's just so artful and brilliant and trying to yeah trying to um look at like his different way to take comics and um and 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 change the language of the visual language of comics we're not doing you know a six panel grid a five panel grid a nine panel grid whatever we're doing two pages of art spread out and we're using the tiers of the artwork differently where um you know and uh uh, it's, it's been helpful because so much of this stuff is, it's a knot it's that you have to untie to find a way like, this is such an important scene. Okay. I can, maybe I can dedicate two pages to it. How do we tell Jorah Mormont's story in two pages? We have to get into it. We have to get out of it and we have to feel like we, it, we didn't rush it or it feels cramped. So it becomes, you know. Yeah. One of those that I laid out again, as I recall. Um, uh, and don't get me wrong, uh, like there's a lot. Like one of my one of my first instructions to Mel is like, if I give notes that don't work, please abandon them. Um, <laughs> he's on the front line, and what he has to do, like the level of detail he's building into each issue, um, it's it's vital that he is has the freedom to do what works uh, without having to second guess himself. So. I end up giving him these incredibly, like, one page of comic script could be, you know, like, for page one and pa- four panels, and I've sent him three pages of Word document at 12 Wow, months. that's almost Alan Mori. It's very Alan Mori in that regard. It's And this is not how I... I have worked this way before, but typically... <laughs> like, I just did a, um, a graphic novel, an original graphic novel series called The Last Siege, my own medieval war story I'd been working on for years and years, and I finally found mm-hmm. a way to make it happen. It came out with an uh, image. Uh, earlier this year, beginning of this year, the trade came out. Okay. Anyway, that, I got to go in and do very light, uh, a very light touch with the panel direction, working with this artist, Justin Greenwood. And um, so it's interesting because all this kind of, like, that, that project crystallized the same time I got hired to do this Clash of Kings. I'm like, oh my god, I'm suddenly working on both these at once. Wow. And they're so polar opposite in terms of production. Yeah. One is all about control and uh, the, the Clash of Kings is all about like creating these intensely controlled scripts uh, so that we don't detour, detour course. Where when I was doing my own story that takes place in a similar kind of setting, I'm like, they fight here. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know. That's that's what you need to know. They fight here. I did um, a lot of those panels. Um, 
but that's there's more freedom there because you're not you don't you're not bearing the responsibility of somebody else's baby, you know. Yeah. And I well, guess that's what I'm doing is I'm babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm just curious a little bit. Um, has George R. R. Martin weighed in a little bit, or have you interacted with George R. R. Martin at all um, for the process of this of creating this? Uh, not on the process of creating this. Like we all like. I work with uh, Anne Grawl, and I work with um, uh, Rhea, who is uh, who works directly with George. I mean, they both work directly with George. I know he's seeing all of it, and uh, my understanding is he's he's happy with it. Um, I've met him a few times uh, now, but I've never been in a position to speak with him directly about oh, okay. this project. It would be it would be nice to it would be fun yeah, to, but he he's an exceptionally busy guy. Um, really? <laughs> I, I don't know if you knew that. Um, no, I didn't. But, uh, you know, it's, it's myself and Anne and Rhea, and uh, we go over every script together. We go over uh, all the art comes in, the pencils, the colors, the letters, every mm-hmm. stage, and we all look at it together uh, online together. We're not in the same – none of us are in the same locations. Um, but uh, – and, you know, have a little back and forth uh, with our notes – and uh, and then you know make any suggest any changes, and um, these are the, they're the people that too, as far as I'm aware work closest in general on these projects with George, and they um, mm-hmm. are very well suited to know what the the stories um, need more so than I on my own would. So it's wonderful working with them, having uh, them there. It's like. Um, it's the, the whole scaffolding sort of thing. You have these people, these uh, who are exceptionally talented and very dedicated to this project, um, all working to make sure that uh, we're as true as possible to to George's vision. So no, I haven't as much as I would like to. Uh, yeah. You know, restraint at this point. I don't get to just be a fan like I was in two thousand five, but. Mm-hmm. I'd have to be professional, which would be so frustrating. Um, <laughs> of course. Um, well, um, just kind of, uh, I'm, I'm curious to get a little bit into semi-controversial waters, but you as an author and now working on George R. R. Martin's world, um, what do you, do you want to weigh in like a Martin is, is notoriously a slow, a slow writer and he's gotten, He's gotten some famous defense from Neil Gaiman and Stephen King. So I don't. What what would you do? You have any weighing in on like the on you know on, on like the on what on the fan outrage and and kind of like even before I was involved with this project and and before I was um you know even before this was like there was outrage over this. This has been a, a topic that I've had opinions on for a long time, which is creators create at the rate that they create. Yeah. It's very hard. Um, oh, yeah. The, uh, I did, so I did this eight issue series, like I mentioned, the, the last siege it's called with image and it came out monthly for eight issues, but I spent 15 years working on that, trying to figure out how to tell the story. I have a notebook from 2002, I want to say, where I have this detailed outline and I buried that and I just kept working and recreating it, recreating it, recreating it, throwing it away, recreating it, throwing it away, recreating it. And finally, um, you know, I finally figured out how to get the budget together to, to get the book made, to get everyone paid to. Uh, but I also most importantly figured out how to tell the story. 
And so I got that all rolling. We've got the first issue. It's being drawn. And I find my notebook and I look at, oh, I wonder how much it, I wonder how different this is. I pick it up and I look into it. Like all I did was circle all the way back. I spent uh -huh. 15 years second guessing myself. Yeah. Um, it's hard. I don't, oh, yeah. I can't, I can't weigh in uh, even remotely on um, uh, George R. R. Martin's process in this yeah. instance. I can only speak in the general terms of the creative process. And I don't begrudge anyone time. Um, we wait, we'll wait like three years between movies and uh, no one really blinks an eye. We'll wait. Um, you know, I mean, we waited what, how long between return of the Jedi and phantom menace for there to be another star Wars. And yeah. all it did was pump up the excitement. We waited again uh, after revenge of the Sith before the last Jedi and people were, like absolutely devoted time shouldn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had a similar thing. So uh, my previous series with image uh, danger club, we did, uh, we were on a good roll. It was three of us, myself, Eric Jones, and another person that I'd worked with since I was a teenager, both Eric and I had rusty. He's our colorist. And we got five issues out and we are having a little bit, it's a very complicated book. And so we're having, we're struggling a little admittedly on the timeline. And then, Rusty's son was hit by uh, a truck. And oh, my. Oh. He ended up being okay, but it was very serious. My he goodness. had a brain injury. Um, hmm. Rusty couldn't work during that time. And the time he had allotted for the book, which was already slim before he had to go back to his full-time job, by the time he was done taking care of his son, he was back to full-time work. So suddenly we had a choice. Do we fire Rusty from the book where the whole point was doing it with Rusty, who has the most unique visual coloring style that I have seen in comics? Of, uh -huh. of just this bright, alive, vivid color. And I'm saying that as a colorblind person. It's like, wow. Um, and also this like friend from 30 plus years because of something that was out of his control. Or do we just say, you know what? The schedule doesn't matter. And people, I saw so many comments online of people going, oh, they really dropped the ball on this book. I ah, forget them. I'm just going to sell my copies. Oh, I'm so sick of people like this. These creators, they don't even care. It's like, you know what? We all have things going on in our lives. Yeah. All of us. Mm -hmm. And no one knows. Like, I have no idea why or what's going on in George R. Martin's life. It could be all wine and roses. It could be a struggle. I have no idea. No, yeah. I have no idea with any creator, but I always assume that if they could put the book in our hands sooner, they always would. Yeah. And so I believe firmly and this is irregardless of my position working on this material i felt this long before i was involved i i'm a firm believer that you know we buy our book we enjoy our book mm -hmm. and when the next book comes up if you want it buy that book yeah you know? oh, absolutely um i know it's a controversial like a lot of people have a lot of emotion about this topic and that just depends oh, yeah. on how wonderful the books have been for people so absolutely well, I mean, full disclosure, I just I just wanted to hear your own take on on, sure. on on that was because I've said numerous times on this podcast that I I adored Fire and Blood. I I adore any book he writes in this world and I would just as I would be fine with Fire and Blood Volume 2. I would be fine with more Tales of Duncan Egg. Like yeah, as oh, much as I would be with those, the Winds of Winter. I, I don't mind like what whatever I get. Just I want everything he writes for in this world. This is I love everything he's written in this world. I am, um, interestingly, I haven't started Fire and Blood yet, partially because oh. of the deadlines. I have, um, I actually never finished um, the uh, last 
I, I, the very last chapter of Dances with Dragons for Ooh. personal reasons on that, which I will go into. They're not that personal. But at the time when it came out, one of my yeah. closest friends, I've mentioned twice already, I think, in this podcast interview, uh, Dylan Williams, uh, had come down with cancer. Oh, and I'm so sorry. It, I spent my 40th birthday sleeping in the uh, cancer ward while he was dying. And um, I was reading that book during that time because mm-hmm. it would come out. This is like 2010. And... Um, I just reread the previous, and so I was reading that one. And the day that he passed away, I was on that last chapter, and I got on the plane, and I just couldn't read anymore. And I haven't gone back to it since. Mm-hmm. It's this weird emotional place for me yeah. that I am. Uh, I know I need to get there. I need. I know I need to read it, and I. I want to do that, but um, it's. I think now I have to reread them all again. Yeah. which uh, is a weird thing to do since I'm deconstructing the second one <laughs> uh, letter by letter. Um, uh, so it, it's funny how uh, we can take stories like this uh, and we momentous life moments, good and bad. Yeah. Um, and I've had both of those around this particular property, both as a fan and now as a professional and how, much these projects come to mean to each of us, which is one of the reasons we get so passionate and frustrated because we're so desperate to read the next chapter. It's often <laughs> not genuine anger. It's just the desire for more. Of oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I, 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 I did buy, uh, I actually went out and bought Fire and Blood. I probably could have asked for a copy, I guess. I didn't think about that. But <laughs> um, Your patronage was probably appreciated, though. No, yeah, I had to, I had to go buy it, and um, I also did the uh, audio because um, I really enjoy listening to this stuff while I'm cleaning my house or something. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, hold on, are you still there? I'm still there. Oh, Can you sorry, hear me? Had, yeah, yeah, my phone. Uh, I just had to. I realized is my phone going to die, and I checked, and it is not. Um, okay. Good. So, uh, yeah, I'll take anything I can get. And more Dunkin' Egg stories. Oh, my God, yes. I yes. will eat those up. Um, mm-hmm. I would read a hundred of those. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I also have the uh, comics adaptation of the first one signed. Oh, Ooh, um, nice. I got that one signed back at that first signing. Because I went to a second signing after the <laughs> Dances with Dragons came out. Yeah. And so I went to the first signing with my sister. Mm-hmm. who uh turned out was also a fan and so we went to the second signing several years later yeah it was not as humble as the oh. first signing it was in a a theater yeah. uh a two level theater with giant balcony our seats were on deep back balcony yeah um and then so he spoke on this stage with a microphone and then every there was a line that was like an hour and a half long or something to get your book signed. And once again, I brought a copy of my book. It was, I think it was my super cool book to give to him. And he stopped me and he made me sign it again. So, um, uh, but that was, uh, uh, it was such a strange experience to go from that basement signing a few years earlier to this. Wow. It was such a different world to, to yeah. see, you know, but it was exciting. Yeah. So, um, I think we're reaching um, near the end, but uh, I-, I wanted to ask um, again to kind of circle back to the Batman question, but now turn sure. it onto onto uh, the the Song of Ice and Fire. What do you think it is about George R. R. Martin's world and it, the stories he's telling that 
makes it so appealing that it's become that story that of suddenly it went from being something in a basement to filling an entire theater. Mm. What, what do you think it is about the, the world? Well, I mean, I think that for a lot of people, a lot of people who uh, would dip their toe into the world of fantasy, uh, fiction kind of material, the, um, the level of realism, the level of relatability with the characters is something that we don't see a lot. Like, you know, you don't worry, like they're not sitting there talking about like, you know, uh, well, it gets into something I think George R. R. Martin himself said. What's what was Aragorn's tax plan? Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's it's relatable in a level yep. that that material often isn't, and it's the the eschewing of the fantasy elements through most of the first book in terms of like we don't get like anything really truly. Do we get anything like really truly fantasy until the dragons show up, and even then, that's uh, such a limited level. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in little bits here and there. It's it's such a whereas in Tolkien, uh, which I also absolutely adore, you've got you know elves and hobbits and smog right out the gate. Yeah. You've got magic rings, absolutely. and um, we've had decades of that as kind of our uh, pattern of uh, fantasy, and then something comes along that is um, that feels very fresh, yeah. and I, it, was, it was also kind of a perfect storm. I think of coming along at the right time, you look at what was going on when those books kind of over the course of the early two thousands, as those books slowly snowballed into, uh, the thing that they are, um, obviously pushed heavily along by the existence of the TV show, but still, yeah, it was already just, it was, it was increasing rapidly. Um, it's, it's kind of the Battlestar Galactica effect too, because, um, you look at science fiction pre September 11th, you get, uh, the creation, uh, and, and maybe not the airing, but the creation of the show Enterprise, which was very much mm-hmm. the same kind of Star Trek we had been seeing, this utopia. We are, you know, we are explorers, and we believe in ideals, and we are good people. And yeah. then after, like, this this major cultural shift occurred that really um, altered the way I think people saw the world, we have this gritty more cynical worldview um and we see Battlestar Battlestar Galactica come out and Mm -hmm. and resonate with people in a way that just takes Star Trek crumples it up and throws it to the ground and and walks away um Mm -hmm. it's it was what in some ways what uh A Song of Ice and Fire did with fantasy was the same thing that Battlestar Galactica at that time did with televised science fiction Um, it, it put it, it translates our own fears. It translates our own, uh, angers and, and, and takes them and makes something again, like I, I said at the beginning, uh, more relatable. Um, Mm -hmm. and and there goes my cat running around with a bag in her mouth. I don't know what's going on here. Oh, sorry. (laughs) This is a segue for the people listening. My cat is crazy and running around with a bag in her mouth, just trotting around. Um, Anyway, Uh-oh. so yeah, that's that's my uh, uh, take. Um, I think that it was the right place at the right time. It may not have worked 15 years earlier. It may not have worked 15 years later. Mm. But where it was is what we needed fantasy to be, I think, us as a society. Um, and he happened to be in the position, I can't even imagine by design, because who could predict that? Oh, no. Know? Yeah. yeah. But... 
he, what he was doing just happened to align with what we needed. And, yeah. um, and some, and somehow we have all these people who worked very tirelessly to make sure that got into our hands. Yeah. Um, cause it's never just the author. There's a hundred people behind every author pushing those books in a way to, to help us find out they exist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's probably my best guess, um, of why. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a, that's a wonderful answer. And thank you so much for that. Um, I want to shoot a couple, um, like, a, because do you mind if I ask some really like a quick fire nerdy questions on oh, you? Yeah, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, Red Dragon or Black Dragon, would you choose for the Black Fire Rebellion? I mean, I just like Black Dragons. I'm just going Black Dragon. And Quick Fire, not even thinking about it, I, I'm picking Black Dragon. Okay. Uh, Robert or Rhaegar in, the, in Robert's Rebellion? Rhaegar. Rhaegar? Oh, okay, mm-hmm. interesting. All right. Want to follow up and explain why? Mm, just, I just... You know, I've been picking apart scenes lately uh, in Clash of Kings. I've just picked apart the um, uh, Daenerys going through the uh, Undying. Oh, uh, that's going to be so... I'm so looking forward to seeing oh that. Oh, my God. That was so exciting to break down. And I I wanted more and more space for that. But Oh, gosh. It was... Um, it's just such... I mean, there's a visual feast there. And there's almost no dialogue. I put almost no dialogue in this because it's, really? it's not about prose in this mm-hmm. moment it is about which means that when you don't have the dialogue you have to really dig in deeper on the visuals and beat by beat as she's going down the hall and she's passing the doors and how do we how do we you know portray this these these overpowering images that begin assaulting her there's a whole thing there um but we'll see how it all comes together um but uh you know i don't know i there there are things that i I know in, in general that I've needed to know about like what I'm picking, what I'm choosing about where things are going. But in, in this instance, I don't really know much more than anyone else does. So uh, yeah. in fact, the material is so not fresh in my head with the later books. I'm focusing just on this, just on okay. these moments. All right. And, um, there is, uh, I don't, it's okay. Going back when I read them, that when I read the books the first time, I, trusted Robert and his intentions of the things we heard that happened years earlier. Yeah. I was like, yeah, no, I really, if you'd asked me then I said, Robert, Robert, Robert. Now I look back and go, I don't believe Robert was ever the good guy. I think, I think he thought he was a good guy. Mm -hmm. And again, I say this strictly as a reader, I have no knowledge of intent. I just look at it and go, I, I just at some point started, thinking that Robert, his motivations were not healthy. Now, I liked him as a king. When you go back and you read Clash of Kings, like, he's brusque, he's brutal, but man, I mean, things things stayed under control while he was king. Oh, right? yeah. I'm, you know. That's um, why I always defend him to some fans who, who, who decry him. I was like, no, 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 no. L- look at what happened after he was not around. I don't think okay, so I'm just I'm just answering in terms of who do I think was in a just side. I don't think his rebellion was necessarily just. I do think uh, against in terms of Rhaegar, uh, but when we're talking about um, Rhaegar's father, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, there was obviously, like, monstrous, terrible things going on there. Um, and, but I don't think that was, that, I, don't, that, I don't think that was Robert's motivation. I don't think Robert was concerned about that. You no. know? It, yeah, I mean, he pretty much makes it clear he wasn't in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the books. Yeah. He so, wanted Liana. That's what he cared about. Exactly. And I, I, I think that his motivations were, were wrong, were petty, were brutal. I don't think that makes him a bad king. Because you can be a great king, even if you your reasons for getting there were wrong. I mean, I think that uh, that's that's something. I think he kept the peace, and I think he had like some of the things he says, like when he talks about when Cersei talks about or had considered shutting down the brothels, and he's like, "Are you gonna, you know, outlaw eating and going to the bathroom as well?" I mean, yeah. You know, he was practical, he was pragmatic, he was realistic, and he was, you know, given to his excesses. But it doesn't mean he didn't govern on some level well. And there's someone out there will know someone something more and go, well, actually, here's why he was back king of it. Oh, yeah, good point. I didn't think of that. But <laughs> that's why it's a dialogue. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, well, and that, that's what I love about Martin's writing is that he doesn't make it clear. He doesn't make it clear is that you can have that discussion. He makes good points for why Rhaegar might have been the worthy king, but then he also gives points for Robert. Yeah, and I don't, I have no idea whether Rhaegar would have been a good king. I don't know if we have the tools to know. I mean, I don't know <laughs> that we know enough to go, oh, well, what what would his tax plan have been? Um, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I watch, I follow, I follow politics heavily. I watch, you know, most political debates when they mm -hmm. come up. I am very interested in what's going on in my city council when I can follow it. But, you know, I, I don't know. I never, I never heard Rhaegar, you know, debate King Robert in, in terms of what he would have done differently. Yeah. Um, that would make an, a, an interesting, uh, I don't know, take. Um, all right. So next question, if you have one there, let's okay, uh, um, yeah, fire away. Over some of the, how about this one? Um, uh, what was going on between Ashra Dane and Ned Stark? Mm. I, I mean, I don't know, like, intent. Again, I have to preface this because of my closeness to the material. This is not, uh, this is me speaking as a reader when I speak yeah. on this stuff. Of course. And I yeah. personally like to believe the idyllic love story. I personally like to believe that there was something there that, you know couldn't be or something i don't know this is i just went over this because we just uh had who tells that story in clash of kings to somebody else and we have a visual depiction um i'm trying to remember this is one of the chapters i just did and um okay. someone is being told the story um you is know it brown? is it brown i'm trying to remember myself I... because brand is deeply dealing with, with theon's takeover at that time so i don't think it is but i could be mistaken i just did i, I did three issues in a row in like okay. really rapid succession and that's six uh -huh. chapters so it all muddles together once you're done you kind of have to compartmentalize because i'm working now on a fast and furious project um oh, cool nice and you jump around like i could be working on star wars and then fast and furious and then clash of kings and then i'm doing the creator own thing and this other creator owned thing and then i'm back to you know, Clash of Kings, and then uh, suddenly I'm doing Batman. And so you have to compartmentalize so deeply that when I shut that door, it's it's shut. And um, 
I tend to go, yeah, I'm not, I, I haven't, I literally have not thought of that stuff since I was doing it. But I was um, really, that one, I'm trying to remember the details of the story that was told within the book. And I just remember thinking, I, 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 I just, I don't know, I kind of, I was looking at some art because we, you know, uh, that had been portrayed of the character fan art, I think it was. And yeah. going, this is a lovely character who must have ended in some very sad way, you know, She because she leaps from a tower, is that correct? Yeah, that is yeah. correct. And I don't know, I, I just, it just made me very sad at the time. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what really happened there, but okay. um, yeah, I, I can't speculate. <laughs> okay. Um, getting into Dunkin' Egg territory, what happened at Summer Hall? Oh my God, I did not expect a quiz. What did happen? That's the stuff they re- they keep referring to, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So, happened, so, like your 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 own guess, like what what happened? What was going on there? <laughs> I I have never once considered because it's using a device that I absolutely love in stories, which you never have to pay that off. Never the unsaid thing is yeah. is the most powerful thing. Just like of course showing the 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 murder go in happen in the shadows or the sex scene happen behind the curtain, and I never once thought to consider what occurred there i a thing happened there and it was notable and that was the furthest my brain ever went so um i can't even speculate i'm sorry okay that's fine yeah no this is all fun this is all fun okay uh thank you for asking these like silly questions um last one but but this is gonna go perfect into you uh, uh right now adapting the whole giant um war of the five kings but who is the rightful heir to Westeros? <laughs> oh, I mean, if we are going to go from a strictly legal perspective, which I, I, I am, if I was a Dungeons and Dragons character, I would uh, be lawful neutral. Um, uh-huh. I, I tend to really relate to Stannis kind of well, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, because it's like he doesn't necessarily, I love that he doesn't really, he doesn't want it necessarily. Yeah. It is what is, the, but this is, this is the correct course. This yeah. is what is supposed to happen. And he, uh, Robert is arguably an usurper. Um, so I'm <laughs> kind of untying this in my mind as we go. So this is not okay. an answer. This All is right. a, a, a working towards an answer. So Robert uh, did technically kind of usurp the crown, but the, 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 he has a claim. He has, you know, he is a cousin to the Targaryens. There is a, you know, he's, he is like of Targaryen descent. Um, the Brathians all are, uh, even though it's a remote branch and the, um, well, I mean, the fun fact just to chime in is like, is that he, is that Robert is eggs, great grandson, is he? I was trying to think. Yeah. Like, I was looking at the family tree not that long ago, going, "Wait, now, how exactly?" Um, Robert. So, I mean, so yeah, like Egg's daughter marries marries right. uh, Robert's grandfather, right? Um, so yeah, I I I do tend to believe, like at that point, that the the war, the, the 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 nations, the, the kingdoms, have accepted Robert as king. He is the king. Whether mm-hmm. it was right or not for him to become the king is arguable. But at this point, he's king. And we know that uh, the children are not his. Um, 
and a, a bastard cannot assume the throne, um, theoretically, which mm-hmm. technically, or, you know, though there's always wiggle room there. But yeah. I tend to lean towards Stannis. Um, I think that if Renly, I think Renly would have been a king that people would, no one wanted Stannis to be king. That was a problem. Yeah. And if Stannis and Renly could have worked out their problems, that would have been huge. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the entire story would have changed dramatically if the two of them had just said, you know what? That's fine. Oh, and hey, by the way, yeah, we don't, we're not worried about the North. Nothing grows up there anyway. So <laughs> if you want to be on your own, fine. Good luck with that. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, then, then you got Rob, Renly, and Stannis all basically carving the kingdom up. That would have been fine. They could have all worked together. But if, if I had to go with a gut reaction... Stannis or Daenerys for different reasons, but Daenerys is so removed mm-hmm. that it is hard to go, yeah, you may have a legal right, but you are so alien to this culture. Mm-hmm. How are we going to trust you? How are you going to work with us? How will you assimilate? How will we be assimilated into what you bring to the table? That yeah. it's she might have a legal right, but it's such a bad choice in my reaction as a, as a reader. At that mm-hmm. point, um, yeah. that I think, keep the clocks ticking, keep the trains running on time. Who's going to do that? That's Stannis. Stannis is your guy. <laughs> well, you just went up a huge peg in in the fa- in the fandom because <laughs> so many people adore Stannis in the fandom, and so oh, book Stannis, and they they are very clear about that. Also, I really tried. Like I, one of the scenes I adapted recently was, um, and I just love in the books when. Stannis, after Renly dies, Stannis is talking oh, yes, about, yes. and you, you can tell there's this weight on him about it. And yeah. as, as, a, as, as somebody who has siblings, I uh, immediately pulls empathy strings for me mm-hmm. when you see something like, you know, Stannis is recalling the peach, for an example, and yeah. why, you know, and that stuff. It's, it's just so... So I try to linger on those moments. I really think it's important for this. There's this this crack in Stannis's armor. There, mm-hmm. there is an affection for Renly that he's denying himself because he can't afford it, yeah. and and this 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 pain over what has occurred that he doesn't want to feel. And I love that because it humanizes him so yeah. much for me. Um, where he could just be monstrous if we don't have those bits. Mm-hmm. So I try to to bring those out. I try to, when I have to cut, go well. Let's not cut that because we need it, sort of thing. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, that's great. I'm looking forward to reading that and so much more. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, well, thank you. And uh, this has been a wonderful discussion. Uh, looking forward to more of this wonderful series. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, that's a good question. I've got lots of projects coming up. Um, I don't just do these adaptations. Um, I have announcements coming, uh, from multiple publishers soon. I'm on Twitter, uh, Landry Q Walker on Twitter. Um, and I sometimes post a little behind the scenes things of my work, uh, deconstructing these, uh, very lengthy chapters into a 21 page comic book. Um, so please, if you're on Twitter, come Say hi to me on there. Okay. Awesome. Okay, actually, one last quick question before we sure. head off. I'm just curious. Would you want to come back to do A Storm of Swords? Oh, I would love to come back. Um, oh. This is, it is one, it is the, the creative exercise alone. I have learned so much on just by 
um, having to think about storytelling so differently and in such a detailed way that uh, I'm loathe to let that go. And I've only got, um, what, I think eight issues left uh, when we wrap up. Um, I'll get to the end of Clash of Kings. And I love working with the team, with Rhea and and Anne, uh, have been wonderful. We've been doing this for... We were working on it a long time before the first issue came out, or like okay. maybe a year. Uh-huh. Um, so it's been like three years. I don't remember. Um, and at this point, not having that would be, aside from the fact that it's regular work, which we all yeah. in the freelance industry love, aside from the fact that I'm working on a property that I uh, adore, that I'm a huge fan of, um, I would be. I would miss the the people that I work with. So I absolutely would love to come back. Uh, if that becomes an option, I will be there front and center. I'll make the time. Okay, um, awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Landry, for coming by, and uh, good luck to all your future projects. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.